We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel Ben-Koren. Do you play video games? Have you ever wondered how it affects your life? We interviewed the psychologist Pete Etchells about the impact of video games on society. Daniel, what was the conversation about? So Pete Etchells has a book out called Lost in a Good Game, and it's an exploration of his own relationship with video games, but also about how they impact society more broadly. Despite our anxieties about video games, Pete Etchells believes that they actually can be very good for us, both as individuals and on a social level. And he was a co-author on a recent report on why the World Health Organization is seeking to classify video game addiction as a public health problem. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you do, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and helps others to find the podcast. Hello, I'm Ros Irwin, a journalist for the Sunday Times, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Pete Etchells, author of Lost in a Good Game, Why We Play Video Games and What They Can Do for Us. And I thought where it would be good to start, I, I was reading the reviews of it, and um, the Times described your book as a heartfelt defense of a demonized pastime. And I wondered how much you feel that video games are demonized, um, partly by the media, but partly more broadly than that. I think it's something that's been a struggle for video games for quite a while, actually. So the re- part of the reason that I wrote the book in the first place was that it seemed to me that there was a lot of stuff in the media around whether video games are all good or more often than not all bad for us. So you'd see headlines like, I don't know, computer games leave kids with early onset dementia or they're literally melting kids' brains and things like that. And then what seemed to happen was that there was a backlash. So some people would say, hang on, no, this is ridiculous. Look at all the the good things that games can do for us. And there was nothing really that was in the middle ground. Uh, and I think with anything like this, the, the story is always more complex than it, it, it's often made out to be. So the, the grey area of video games, where in some cases they might be useful for us, in other cases they might be harmful, is actually a really interesting thing to think about. So I think in the course of trying to write something along those sorts of lines, 
you need to tackle these ideas of people vilifying games and where they're coming from and, and why they maybe do that. I think more generally, kind of beyond the media, in terms of thinking about how the public more generally thinks about video games, they can be demonised sometimes, and I think it very often comes from a situation where people don't quite get them. So if you've not played video games before and you don't really know how they work, they look like quite weird things to get into. They're really hard to get into in terms of actually being able to enjoy them in the first place. You know, if you if you watch a movie for the first time and it's rubbish, you only have to watch another movie again. It's a really low barrier to entry to eventually find another movie that you might like. But with video games, it's really different. So with video games, you know, you've got to, let's take console games, for instance. You've got to buy the console, plug it into your TV, then it connects to the internet, and that's always a nightmare. And then it'll start downloading updates and look like the thing's broken. And that's before you've even put the game in. And then you start playing the game, and you're really rubbish at it to begin with. And it takes time to get to a level where you can be competent at it and and therefore enjoy it. So there's quite a high barrier to entry to the point at which you actually enjoy playing video games. And I think because of that, they they tend to get a bit of a bad rap. I wanted to also to go quite quickly into your personal experience of games, because this is quite a personal book, actually. And that's the thing that perhaps surprised me reading it, that there's a lot of you in there. And and I want and I thought you could talk our listener through how you first uh, and the reasons you first started to play video games yeah i mean part part of why it's not quite the book that i think a lot of people might think it is is going back to that question before really of we, we find it quite difficult to talk about video games and what i wanted to try and do with the book was find a new way of talking about them so that the people who do play them it's not going over all ground and a bit boring but for people who don't play them there's something there that they can hopefully relate to so i thought a lot about this when i was writing it and even though i played video games all of my life and i know research them as part of my job i'd never really thought about the impact that they'd had on me at major time points in my life so in the first chapter of the book i talk about my dad and my dad died when I was um, 14. Um, he had motor neuron disease. He he wasn't a gamer. Um, he, he bought me my first video games consoles and we played occasionally. Um, but he was the person that introduced me to video games. Um, he was also the person that um, really instilled a, a sense of curiosity in me about the world around me. So I kind of feel like that that's what put me on the road to becoming a scientist in a way. But the times around when we first found out about his diagnosis and then later on when he when he died and then even later on again when we sort of revisit that time special dates during the year like his uh, the anniversary of his death or his his birthday which is today um i found myself coming back to video games quite a lot and it wasn't too it was a form of escapism but not in my sense, in a negative way, I don't think. It wasn't to forget what was going on, but it was just a way of distracting myself for a little bit. So I talk about when I first found out about his diagnosis. It was such a huge thing, and I just couldn't get my head around it at all. I went back to starting uh, a video game that I'd been struggling with um, for a bit. 
And maybe on the outside, that looked like a really horrible thing. You know, we'd have this really horrible conversation. And then the first thing that I do is go to my room and play games instead. But really what it was was a chance for me to just to process what had happened. I think if I sat there in my room and just tried to think about it, it would just be a completely overwhelming experience. Whereas trying to focus on something else for a little bit and using that as a way to distract and just allow my brain the space, as it were, to think about what's going on, I found really helpful. And I found since that time, whenever big, horrible things have happened in my life, I've, I've, I've moved back to doing that. I've moved back to playing video games in that sort of way, not to run away from things. And I think there's an important conversation to have around at what point does escapism in games become a harmful thing for people. But for me, it wasn't to run away from things. It was just to give myself a bit of breathing space to think things through. But I think you've sort of asked your own next question there, because I wondered where you think the element of escapism crosses over into something a bit more dangerous a bit more worrying. Yeah, I think it's it's a question that's on a lot of people's minds at the minute about video games, particularly in the context of addiction. And I think that came about really, particularly last year in the summer, with for two reasons. One was that the World Health Organization decided to classify gaming disorder as a, a, a formal clinical disorder in, in its draft version of ICD-11, which is their big diagnostic clinical manual. And that happened at the same time, basically, as Fortnite became this huge mega hit around the world. So it was quite easy from a news perspective to, to pin the two together, right? So there's this huge thing that all kids are talking about and they're not, not doing their schoolwork or anything anymore because they're all playing and thinking about Fortnite. And also games are addictive and therefore bad for us. The research behind video game addiction, on the one hand, there is lots of it. So it's going back about 30 years or so. On the other hand, it's not particularly definitive. And I know that the scientists out there that would disagree with me, and there was a big debate about it last year, actually. Um, but I'm very much in the camp that what's happened over the years is that we've taken something like gambling disorder, say, as a starting point, which is completely fair enough. You take the questionnaires for gambling disorder and basically replace the word gambling with gaming. Give these people these surveys and you'll get a range of responses. And at some point you can decide a cutoff and anybody above that cutoff has what was gambling disorder, but is now gaming disorder. And then what you find is that all of the hallmarks, all of the... Um, uh, the, the clinical criteria for gaming disorder look very, very similar to those other disorders that we base them on. That's fine as a starting point, but what it misses potentially is whether there are any unique aspects of video games that we're missing or whether there are unique aspects of, say, gambling disorder that we're imposing on gaming disorder. So that's not really the answer to your question, but to go back to this idea of at what point does escapism become harmful? We don't, we don't quite know yet. There are sort of common sense ways in which you can think about it in terms of if somebody's playing video games for long hours during the day, but there's no evidence of harm otherwise, you know, they've got a job, they're, they're in touch with their family or friends if, if that's appropriate, but they just play games a lot that's fine, that's not harmful escapism. If they're doing it to an extent that those other things are being impacted, then those are the sort of time periods where we start start to worry, I guess, in a sense. But this issue of, of generally how we diagnose something like gaming addiction goes back to that sense of engagement in a way, because in the research literature, we find it very hard to distinguish between what you might call highly engaged gamers, people who play a lot of the time, but they're fine otherwise, and people for whom that engagement is is harmful. So the problem then that we've got is that if you look at the prevalence rates in the literature for addiction, 
Some studies say it's upwards of about 46% of the gaming population. Other studies say it's as low as about 0.2%. And getting that number right is really important because if we assume it's the higher number, say, but the the actual number is, say, something around 1%, then what we'd end up doing is overdiagnosing. We'd be saying that lots and lots of people who have no problems with video games actually have a pathologized clinical disorder. And that's a real problem because you're saying that people have an issue when in fact they don't, they don't, and there's all sorts of knock-on financial issues for that. But the other way goes as well, if we underdiagnose, and actually if we overdiagnose as well, what we're doing in both cases in that situation is we're missing the people for whom video gaming actually is a problematic thing. So trying to understand who those people are, what they look like, what sorts of games might be particularly problematic for them, or even what sorts of mechanisms in games might be problematic. What other things are going on in their life? How long does this go on for? These are all questions that we've not really got to grips with yet. And I think those are the important ones to try and figure out if we want to get gaming addiction right. And of course, with the overdiagnosing element, you might find some people who get very addicted for a short period to some game, you know, the kind of candy crushes, you know, not necessarily the sort of more complex games. But then that's a short period of their lives. They take it off their phone and, and they're done. And, and those people clearly don't have a problem. It's just a, for a period of their life, they were really enjoying something. Yeah, that's a really, really good point, actually. So there's two things to say about that. One is that there is some research evidence that shows that. So there was some research done a few years ago on a few thousand US participants that showed that if you, if you give them a, a gaming disorder questionnaire, a certain number of them will show, will meet the clinical criteria for gaming disorder. If you then test them, follow them up six months later, none of them show that that same level of diagnosis. So it seems to burn itself out over six months. And moreover, it doesn't seem to be associated with any other problems in terms of health and well-being. So just testing somebody at one time point might be a real issue because it might simply be the case that it runs its course. The other thing to say is that maybe that's a product of the way that games work themselves. There are some games which people play for ages and ages and ages. I've played Warcraft for 10 years now, on and off. But really, for the most part, you play a game, you see it through to the end, you maybe play the multiplayer for a bit, and then you finish it and move on to something else. Like Candy Crush is your example. You you might play that for a bit, but then kind of get bored with it, and then move on to a different game, or read a book instead, or watch TV. So whether there's an addictive potential for that particular game, whatever it is that we're talking about. We also have to look at the context in which it's used and, and the way in which people use it and its, and its shelf life, I guess. One of the particular games, that's, types of games that are quite new, or maybe my experiencing them in any way is quite new, are those sort of app-based games that have become very popular where you might play a character and then you're you actually, well, they, it invites you to pay a lot of money into it, you know, so they're free, and then, you know, to get extra scenes or whatever it is, get clothes for your character, that type of thing, extra experiences within the game, you have to actually cough up money. And I was really interested in the book, bit in the book about that because there's obviously some people who play those games, a lot of people who play those games and never give any money up. Although in, I, I, in my experience of that, sometimes you can get stuck by not being able to. But then there's some people, I think you call them whales, like whales, yeah, 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 who cough up all the money and they're sort of funding everybody else there. Are those people people who have an addictive, is there an addictive element to that, do you think? I think the short answer is we don't quite know, but there's certainly a, a population that would be really important to look at for precisely that reason. I have 
quite an acute dislike of those sorts of games for those sorts of reasons, really. People play games for all sorts of different reasons and what people consider to be a good game, that will vary from person to person. My own personal feeling and opinion is that I like games that have got good narratives and and immerse me in a really strong storyline. So part of the problem that I have with a lot of those games is that they just look like cash cows. You know, there's not really a story attached to it. There's the framework of maybe a, a setting, but that's about it really. And it really does look as though they're just there to generate money. And I think part of that comes from the way that games are monetized and, and how that's shifted over the past 20, 30 years or so. We saw games companies move from just selling a game as a one-off thing for, say, £50 on a console. That still happens, obviously, but more often than not, what's happened now is that they've moved through this idea of doing a subscription-based model, which never really worked, to now maybe charging a bit less or nothing at all for a game, but then trying to make up the deficit through in-game microtransactions. And that's where the problems start, because um, for a lot of these games, what you want to try and do is, is, is keep people playing it, but maybe kind of just trickling through a little bit, bit of money every now and again. And what we're starting to see is that some of the mechanisms that are used in those games basically look like the same mechanisms that you see in things like fixed ops, betting machines, and at casinos. So there's been a big discussion recently around loot boxes, which are a form of this in-game transaction. They're basically, they're a bit like the, do you remember the Panini sticker albums? I used to love those when I was a kid. So you kind of buy a, a packet of stickers and you'll get six, say, and some will be really common and you'll get loads of them. And then the the super shiny, ultra rare ones, you have to buy loads and loads of packets to maybe even have the chance of getting one. Loot boxes kind of work in the same way. So in a, in a game, there might be outfits or skins that you can apply to your character. Some are super rare, some are really common. So the super rare ones, by dint of the fact that they're really rare, become more desirable. So you can spend loads of money buying these boxes to see if you can get them. There's some emerging evidence now to suggest that depending on how that loot box system is implemented and you know for every game that's got one there's a different way of doing that if you can pay for loot boxes in the game um, there seems to be an association with problematic gambling so studies have basically shown that if you give people a problematic gambling scale ask them about their loot box purchase behavior you see correlations between the two what that doesn't tell us is which way the causal direction is so it could be that People who buy loot boxes start to show problematic gambling issues, or it could be that people who already have problematic gambling issues are more likely to play games that have loot box elements in them. In a way, it doesn't matter which which way around it is. It's problematic both ways. Either you're uh, introducing problematic gambling issues to your gaming population, or you're targeting vulnerable in- individuals. So there's real issues there both ways. And, and I see this a lot in particularly mobile games, they're called freemium games, basically. And it's that coupled with really problematic marketing techniques as well. So a lot of these games, you can watch an advert to get an extra life or something like that, or every two minutes it will just show you an advert, or you can pay to uh, to turn them off. If you actually look at those adverts sometimes, they're for other games, and they say things like, this game is really addictive, as though that's a good thing. There was one that I saw the other day that was, if you start playing this, you won't sleep for three days. It's like, <laughs> I really like sleep. I don't want to do that. But I think it comes from um, a difference in, you know, I I think of addiction in terms of a clinical definition, 
we say we're addicted to things sometimes when actually what we mean is we really like that thing. You know, I'm addicted to chocolate or coffee or things like that. So it's that conflation of different meanings of, of the term that I think happens in those cases. But I think there needs to be a lot more responsibility on the parts of those particular types of games developers to really think about what sorts of mechanisms they're putting into their games and what sorts of effects that they will have on people. Like you said earlier, the, the, the model for these sorts of approaches tends to be that most people who play won't really spend any money on it at all, or they'll just spend a little bit. But there will be a small population of players who are called whales, which is a um, slightly offensive term that was borrowed from casinos, who are the big cash investors in games. We'll talk about a particular game I started playing in the book that was one of these sorts of games. And I spent about £100 on it, and I felt really horrible afterwards. And I managed to get the money back because the game was glitching out and not working properly, so I complained and thankfully got the money back and then deleted it. But the group that I was in that was playing that game at the time, I remember we, you know, we'd have conversations about what we were doing and how we were doing it, and a lot of them were talking about they were waiting for payday so that they could drop more money on the game. And they were talking about 500 to to £1,000 ago anecdotally um the guy who was the biggest player in our particular server um spent about thirteen thousand dollars on the game no game's worth that amount of money that's uh, extraordinary isn't uh, it and you know that's it's not you there's no end point as well so you can spend thousands and thousands of pounds on some of these games potentially but still not finish it because there is no finish the levels are endless so i, I have a real problem with games like that and i think developers themselves probably will start to have problems with these things soon. We've we've seen a, a number of um, parliamentary um, committee inquiries about immersive technologies, addictive technologies, these sorts of Im implementations in, in video games. And I think we're going to see regulation soon. And I think games developers need to be involved in those conversations because they need to rationalise why they're implementing these these mechanisms I suspect a lot of them don't realise what it is that they're doing because they don't have backgrounds in psychology necessarily, but that doesn't necessarily excuse it either. Um, we've talked about where we're probably right to be worried. What about the areas where you think the sort of moral panics that we see about games are wrong? Where do you think we've overstated the risks that um, games pose, particularly perhaps to children or yeah, I think I think this comes back to this um, this blanket use of the term video game or addiction or, or whatever it is that you want to talk about. In that, the big one really for for me was the question of whether violent video games cause aggression. This is the one that's been around for for decades. Again, there's a lot of research on it, and there's a lot of research that shows yes, there is a link, but it's not very good research. The best research that we have out there suggests that there are associations between playing a violent game at early age and 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 maybe more aggressive tendencies later on, but they're they're tiny, they're really weak. So if you are going to become an aggressive adolescent, there's probably lots of other things going on in your life that will contribute to that. There's a, a similar sort of thread at the minute in terms of screen time more generally. And it's a really compelling idea for scientists in a way. These things are remarkably hard to test in the lab. So very often we have to re resort to longitudinal studies where we follow thousands of people over the course of many, many years. And something like screen time is useful for scientists because it's really easy to get a number for. It's, you know, how many hours per day do you spend on a screen, basically? And you can be a little bit more smart about it and break that down by, you know, TV, video games, things like that. And there was a thread of, of research over the past 
two to three years, I think, that's claimed that screen time is is very clearly linked to uh, teenage thoughts of suicide and depression and anxiety. Again, though, if you look at the data, uh, the data from those studies themselves have been overextended. So if you actually look at them, they suggest that the, the, the effects that screen use has is very small. If you look at more recent research that's you know, based on really good scientific principles, so they pre-register their analysis methods to say, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to analyze my data before they actually collect the data and then stick to that. Again, we see tiny, tiny effects. So there's a paper that came out in January that showed that, yes, there is a link between screen time and um, uh, and mental well-being. It's about the same as the link between eating potatoes and mental well-being. Nobody's having any worries about potatoes. There are stronger effects for things like whether you wear glasses or not. So I think part of the problem with some of these moral panics, again, goes back to the idea that these are relatively new technologies. If you don't play them or use screens that much or you didn't grow up with them, then there's a certain lack of knowledge about how people interact with them and how how people use them for good or bad. And when somebody comes along and says mental health issues are on the increase, it's an easy thing to point the finger at. And there are plenty of other potential causes there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look at the world we're in at the minute. You know, it's an absolute nightmare. It's hard to get on the property ladder. There's no money anywhere. We've been in austerity for, for 10 years. Those are really difficult things to deal with. And, you know, I'm, I'm a university lecturer and I have conversations with my students all the time where they have real worries about what they're going to do after they finish university, what jobs they're going to get, how they're, how they're going to rent somewhere in London, say, because they want to move closer to family and things like that. Those are the things that worry people and have quite significant impacts on on stress and anxiety yes they also happen to be using their phones all the time but whether or not that's having a real impact generally i'm not so sure i think though that again it goes back to this idea of what are we talking about with these sorts of things so screen time i think is a useless concept it's so vague as to be meaningless and I say, you know, I'm, I'm not that worried about screen time effects. And, and people come back at me sometimes and say, well, you know, what about this particular example of this person or that particular example? And they use very specific examples. And I think that's where the, the research should go. So I'm not worried about screen time broadly. I'm not worried about social media broadly. I'm not worried about Instagram. I'm kind of worried about Instagram in situations where people have poor body uh, image issues and they're constantly looking at uh, problematic Instagram feeds like these pranorexia sites that are out there and, and things like that. Those are the people that I'm worried about. But you lose them when you're talking about social media generally or screen time generally. So we need to narrow it down. Yeah. And now it's time for a quick break. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo 
promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to talk about the positive side because a lot of the book is very positive about video games and what you get from them. You have a lovely quote in there from Naomi Alderman, who obviously is a novelist, but also um, writes, writes games, creates games. And she says, while all art forms can elicit powerful emotions, only games can make their audience feel the emotion of agency. And I thought that was really astute about the difference that you are the one driving it in a way that you obviously don't do with a novel or a film where you're watching someone else's experience on screen. Um, or, you know, reading someone else's experience. And it, and it can draw out that emotional thing. You know, you can feel you've behaved badly in a game, which is quite an interesting thought. And I, I wondered if that for you has been one of the major draws and, and, and the way you think, the way, uh, that, how, how much of a difference that makes in terms of that sort of immersive experience to people. Yeah, it's hugely important to me. And I think, it, I mean, it goes back to my personal view on what I think a good game is. So, again, I, I quite like games that have really strong narratives that allow us to explore those sorts of spaces. I know, you know, other people will just play games to zone out or they'll play it to socialize with other people. And there's all sorts of other different reasons why people play. But nevertheless, games do allow us to do this. Um, And there there were games that I played through the course of writing the book, one in particular called Firewatch, which is a fascinating game for, for lots of reasons. It's it's got a really strong storyline. I'm not going to spoil it in case people play it. Everybody should play it. It's great. It, it's a weird one in the sense that whatever you do within the game, the outcome's always the same at the end. So in that sense, there's maybe a lack of agency because it doesn't matter what you do. You can't, you can't change what's going to happen. But you can change the way conversations go with other characters throughout the game. And I found that a really interesting example of, and I didn't realize it when I was playing it. So you play a guy called Henry who uh, takes a job as a fire lookout in a in a forest in Wyoming. And you don't really meet anybody else in the game, but there's another fire lookout, another tower a bit further along who you communicate with via radio called Delilah. And you're, you're there because you're trying to escape your 
your life, basically. Your, your wife has got early onset dementia and things are going a bit wrong at home, so you kind of run away for a bit. And there are options in how you interact with Delilah through through the story. And, you know, sometimes you can flirt with her if you want to. And I've played it through lots of times and, and, and tried different routes. And I remember the first time I started flirting with her, I felt really bad. I felt like, you've, you've got a wife, Henry. What are you doing? So the next time I interacted with Delilah, I kind of pulled back a bit. And I was like, no, you can't do this anymore. And the response that you get from Delilah is that she gets a bit annoyed with you and she shuts off, quite rightly, because you're messing around. The, the way that games allow you to explore emotional spaces in a relatively safe environment, I think, is, is fascinating. And I think it's something that's missed quite a lot. Not everybody will play Firewatch and, and, and get that experience. I think a lot of people will play it and go, this is a bit boring, and just you know, click, 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 done. But if you just allow yourself the time to consider those different options, I think it's a really fascinating way that allows us to think about how we would ourselves react in those sorts of situations. I think Naomi Alderman's fantastic in this sense in talking about these sorts of issues. And you know, she goes on, I think I quote her in the book, as saying, yeah, um, games really allow us to find out who we really are. And it's through those interactions that I think we can figure out, you know, well, what would I do in this situation? Am I a good person or not? She has a very philosophical understanding. And obviously that, that the piece you've taken that from, you know, she's talking about them as a sort of philosophical project. Mm. Um, do you think that's missed on a lot of people? Because I don't feel, and, and maybe I'm just not aware of it, perhaps these conversations are going on, on online and I'm just not part of them, but that doesn't feel like a mainstream conversation about video games. That actually, you know, there's lots of moral dilemmas that they allow us to confront and, you know, how would you behave in a certain situation? Actually, they have got a philosophical element because you have agency. Yeah, I think it is something that people talk about, but it's by no means a, a mainstream discussion that we have because I think it, the, the, the story around video games gets drowned out by these problems around addiction and, and violence and things like that. But those conversations definitely are happening and I would really like to see them more because there's so many good games out there that allow us to explore current issues and cultural issues in, in really interesting ways. There's there's a, a, a game that I talk about in the book called Last Day of June, which really is an exploration of, of grief. It sounds like a horrible game when you actually describe it. It's, you play a guy called Carl whose wife June dies in a car crash and you essentially go back in time through memories throughout the game to try and change little bits that happened that day to try and stop the car crash from happening. It sounds a bit morbid in a sense, but Really what it's trying to do is show you that you can't go back in time and change things, at least not in the way that you think. There will always be consequences for that. And that's that was really helpful for me because um, I've, I've gone through grief quite a lot and it was a really um, thoughtful way of, of dealing with the subject. But, I mean, there are other games like um, Papers, Please, which is an indie game that came out a few years ago that puts you in the position of a, a border security guard at a, a fictional Eastern Bloc country. And the game is... it's it, The actual mechanics of the game are relatively boring. Somebody comes to your booth, they give you their passport and documents, and you've got to stamp them through if they're allowed in and reject them if they're not. But there's an entire political discourse around it as well. So on different days, there'll be different um, relationships with neighbouring countries. So on one day, the next door neighbour country might be allowed in and the other days it might not be. You are under pressure to get as many of the right people through each day and your pay is based on that and you're in government property so you've got to pay for rent and for food and water and heat for your family and, and medication when they're ill. So when you don't get enough people through during the day because there's increasingly complex forms of administration, 
how do you decide what to pay for? So you end up paying, so you don't have any heat one day, so you can pay for food for your kids, but then they get a cold the day after. It's very bleak. It's very bleak, but and there's there's about twenty different ways in which the game can end, and most of them are pretty bad. Um, there's you know there's spies that come in and say, "Will you start working for us?" But if you get found out, it's game over. But exploring those sorts of um, issues through games again, it allows you to think. Well, you know, what what would it be like in this sort of situation? How would I empathise with people and who to are live a different life? Going? Yeah, effectively. Um, I, I wanted you. You talked about grief there, and I thought there was something really moving. The story of Ezra um, fending in the beginning of the book, and I, I just wanted to get you to tell that because I thought there's something really incredible about effectively they create a memorial for mm. him. So this was in um, World of Warcraft. Um, and there was a kid called Ezra Chatterton, who was a big, uh, big fan of the game. He played it with his dad. And he, through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, got the chance to go to Blizzard headquarters, the game's developer. I think he had a great time there. You know, They showed him around the development studios, and he got to design his own character uh, and provide the voiceover for it. And it was a Tauren character, so Tauren are big humanoid cows in, in, uh, in Warcraft. Um, and he died not long after that and the story i think really hit the, the 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 warcraft community quite hard at the time and a couple of things happened so first is that blizzard essentially left a memorial for him in game so his character is still there you can go and visit him and and play through the quest that he created if you don't know anything about him it's it's just another quest and that's fine but if you do know about the story, there's something a little bit more poignant about it. The other thing that happened was that after news of his death broke, thousands and thousands of players got together and all created new Tauren characters and went on this big crazy stampede from one of the major cities to another. You know, and everybody was everybody's getting killed by the other team and it was a it was a complete mess. But the fact that so many people came together for this person who they'd never met before, just to remember him for a little bit. I think speaks to the power of the communities that can build up around video games. And I think that's one thing that's really important for me. I thought a lot during the course of the book about why it is that we play games. And I think it's different for different people, obviously, but even for the same person, it might be different over different periods of time. And and for me, a really strong draw at the minute is the, the connectedness that they allow. So like I say, I've been playing Warcraft for about 10 years now. I'm in a guild in that. This is only it's a small guild. There's only about 10 of us. Um, most of the people in it are a family up in the north of England. I've known these people for 10 years, and I've never met them in real life. But we've, we've spoken over Skype. We chat all the time online. They are my friends. And about three or four weeks ago, one of them died. He had a heart attack completely suddenly. He was in his late 40s. And... That affected me and other people in the guild in the same way it would if it was a real life, quote unquote, real life face to face friend. They're not any less of a person just because I've never met them or because I'm talking to them through the medium of a video game. They're still people with their own lives and their own loves and their own uh, foibles and things like that. And, And coming to that sort of realization that that's what games allow us to do. They allow us to connect with people and form relationships with people who we already have a common interest with is such a powerful thing that gets missed. Perhaps as well that shows that that distinction when we think of the real world and the virtual world as being so distinct and, you know, so binary that that's become a bit arbitrary perhaps. And, and we should rethink that maybe. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I don't massively buy that there's that much of a distinction, really, nowadays. That's maybe a little bit simplistic in a sense, because, you know, there's a whole conversation that I'm very much avoiding here in terms of how we interact with each other on social media and things mm. like that, particularly strangers. The, the, and we've had that happen in things like Xbox Live where there's been abuse. Yeah, and the bad, absolutely. The bad side that, that, that we know is everywhere Yeah, online. Yeah, and it just feels like it's more amplified, mm. um, particularly in games. But what you don't really hear about that much is is the good side because maybe it's not as interesting. It's you know, it's, It doesn't really impact on anybody else if two people may, meet on, online and become friends or start a relationship. It feels like it does impact us a little bit more if two people meet online and start having a very vicious argument that spills over into other, in, into other topics, and maybe that's why um, it's happened. But I think anybody who, who plays video games where you can connect with people will have stories where they've developed really deep connections with people and, 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 and good, strong relationships. And, you know, for every story that there is out there of, of somebody who's had a really horrible, viciously horrible interaction with somebody on the internet, I, I know of stories where somebody's gone on to play Warcraft and their friend's been feeling really low and near suicidal and they've been talked out of it by their friend. You don't hear those stories that much because they're very hard to find and uncover because they're quite deeply personal. But they are there and I should say as well that I think this issue around toxicity in gaming is not unique to gaming. It's it's something that we see everywhere. I used to write for The Guardian and I would really desperately avoid the comment sections for that sort of Don't reason. Go below the line. Never go below the line. But what seems to be happening at the minute is that games developers are really sensitive to this issue because it does directly impact on whether people want to play their games or not. So um, something called the Fair Play Alliance was created last year, which was a, a cross-industry uh, group of developers and professionals um, to try and figure out and share best practices. So figure out what works and what doesn't in terms of trying to make people people less angry at each other, share that across different games and see if they can reduce these levels of, of in-game toxicity. And that I'm, I'm really excited about that, actually, because if they can come up with something useful, maybe that can be used elsewhere on the internet and we can try and improve the, the tone of the debates that we have. Hmm. Um, obviously, quite a lot of that has been sexist over the years. Obviously, it's, it's every is, you know, it's predictable and much the same as on social media. But... One debate that has been had is, you know, we tend to think of, of gaming as quite male. But actually, you know, I've I've seen those um, studies where it shows that actually women are around, you know, it's around 50-50 and sometimes skewed yeah. in favour slightly of women. Are women playing on average? And I realise I'm making a generalisation here and, and, you know, plenty of women play very different games. There's a, a lot of variety of that. But is there a distinction between what men and women tend to play? Can you see that? Or is it so mixed up? that actually the groups are so much smaller that there isn't any pattern there? That's a really good question. I think, bro broadly speaking, if you take a particular game that you think is very male-orientated, there will be more women playing it than, than you realise. I think your question goes back to this idea of what do we mean by a video game. So whenever I give talks about this sort of stuff, I always ask people who plays video games in the crowd, and you maybe get a few hands go up. And you say something like, well, who plays Candy Crush or Football Manager or things like that? And then loads more hands go up. So I think a lot more people generally, but certainly a lot more women play video games than we realize, but they don't necessarily see it as that. 
because the way that we use these things, particularly with mobile games, it doesn't feel like we're playing a game. It's it's just that we're killing a bit of time on the tube or something like that. So off the top of my head, I can't think of any... I think there is research out there that, that looks at the breakdown of different games by by demographics. I can't remember what they are. I think there are slight slight differences, but they're probably not as big as we would think, really. And what about the more violent games? Because I actually think that there could be an argument in defence of them that some people find, you know, most of us can separate what we're doing virtually from what we're doing. Mm. And it might be quite cathartic for a lot of people, <laughs> you know, a bit like, like you know, sort of hitting a punch bag, frankly. That, yeah. that doesn't mean you go on and hit somebody else. Is there an argument in defence of it that way, that people can get out some of their frustrations? Is there any element of that? Am yeah. I, or am I wondering if I'm wishful thinking? No, here, no, but- no, absolutely. In fact, there's a whole area of research on this. So very broadly speaking, there are uh, quite, well, there's about two or three models, scientific models out there on what these sorts of games do. One's called the general aggression model. So the idea here is that if you play a violent video game, it activates scripts in your head, like violent scripts. So, you know, if if you then, 10 minutes after playing a game, you bump into somebody in the street, you're more likely to punch them because you're already aggressively aroused, as it were. Um, An alternative is called the catharsis model, which is exactly what you suggested, which is, you know, you've had a bad day at work and you go home and you're just a bit annoyed and you go on Call of Duty, vent your frustrations on there and you feel fine afterwards. Um, It's quite hard to tease these sorts of things out. My view is that there's more evidence for that kind of line of thinking than there is for the general aggression model. Certainly, if you look at this at a societal level, in terms of things like murder rates and violence rates, since the 1970s, video game use has skyrocketed, murder rates have gone down. So it's certainly not the case that they're driving those sorts of things. Part of it, I think, goes to this idea of whether you think video games are special or not in that sense. In that I don't feel like we really have this conversation about movies or TV shows. So we have this conversation around, you know, I go and watch, I don't know, the new Avengers movie or um, a new ultra, ultra-violent action flick like Kill Bill or something like that, and then I go outside and I want to have a fight. There might be some people who want to do that, but I think they're a very small, unique population of individuals. The vast majority of people, it's it's entertainment and we can see it as that. And really, I don't see a difference between that and looking at video games. There were worries about things like Tom and Jerry decades ago for the same sort of reason. Super violent cartoons that are aimed at kids. What happens if you show them? Are they going to start going around punching each other? And, you know, that that never came about. I think there have been worries about these sorts of things for as long as technology has existed. In, in the 1950s, it was comic books. Comic books were the source of all the societal uh, ills, in, particularly in terms of the effects that they had on kids. And we'd, we'd look at that nowadays and, and laugh at it because it's clearly not the case. So... My feeling is from the research that that video games don't have this aggressive, arousing effect on us. Certainly not in the long term. So this is another problem with the research, actually. So you, if you do an experimental study, you get somebody into the lab, you get them to play a violent game or a non-violent game. There are all sorts of re- research issues with how those studies are run. But 
apart from anything else, you give them an aggression measure afterwards, whatever that is, and that might show differences between the groups. But that's like 10 minutes after they've played a video game. What you don't know is what's happening an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year afterwards. And actually, the, what, what little research we do have that has attempted to, to look at that over a much longer term has shown that there's no effects. Well, we're going to wrap up quite soon. So I wanted to ask you what going forward makes you excited in the world of gaming? What is there that we should be aware of? New technology or new ways of playing? I don't know, that, that people will be interested to know about going forward. What's coming next? Well, VR would probably be the obvious one to talk about. I'm, I'm kind of on the fence with VR in that, in a way, it's quite exciting. In another way, it's really rubbish and really disorientating and, and the technology isn't quite there yet. I think probably what I'm more excited about is new technologies that are being developed that are, are the kind of architecture for, for video games. So there's a lot of development companies at the minute that are trying to develop systems whereby it's not just 10, 50, 100 players that can play with each other, but you could have, say, millions of people within the same world at the same time and it doesn't crunch your computer to a halt. And coupled with that, advances in AI that make make it so that you can have quite meaningful conversations with in-game characters. I'm quite excited about the next generation of massively multiplayer online games in that respect. So Warcraft 2.0, whatever that might look like. These ideas where you can go into these more immersive environments and have even richer storylines and maybe even find new ways of monetizing it that aren't harmful to people. So, you know, we have lots of worries about with the rise of, of AI that people are going to lose their jobs. But maybe with that same rise and increase in, in that intelligence, we can find ways to make money in online worlds. Um, it's maybe a little bit naive of me to think about that, but that's something that I'm really excited about. And I don't think we're that far away from it, really. I think, you know, next five five to ten years, I think we'll see those games coming out, those Ready Player One type games where people can become fully immersed in them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.